a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Nathan Rome is with you. Today, we're going to have a focus on fraud and money laundering, kind of from a uh, very high, bigger picture point of view, not necessarily talking about the uh, check at the bank kind of thing, although I guess that could be part of it, Uh, and also some of the issues around the RCMP's capacity to handle some larger scope investigations. For that, I have Gary Clement on the program. Gary is a financial crime prevention expert and advocate with a combined 50 years of experience. He originally started with the RCMP in 1973, spent over 34 years in policing. He was an undercover operator in some of the highest levels of organized crime. Eventually, he rose to be the national director for the RCMP's Proceeds of Crime program and was a liaison officer in Hong Kong. Gary has received recognition from partner agencies such as the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration and the CIA. Now he's the chief anti-money laundering officer for Bursa Bank and author of the new book, Undercover, Inside the Shady World of Organized Crime and RCMP, which I just posted a book review about. It was really good. So if people want to get into uh, Gary's career and see some of the the high-flying like blast right through all the cool UC things you, you did, um, definitely pick that up and I'll put up a link when I get the episode live. But welcome uh, to my guest, Gary. Thank you very much, and I appreciate this very much. Yeah, I'm glad to get you on here. I see a lot of your, uh, your work on LinkedIn, so you put up a lot of things there, obviously going through the, the book. Um, uh, we're going to get into this whole money laundering thing because there's a ton of it. I don't think anyone's paying attention to a lot of it. So um, I guess you're the guy to talk to. That's what I've been told. So um, yeah, we'll get into all that. Maybe we can just kind of start though, um, for people who don't know you, just talk a bit about yourself, where you come from and and how you got into this crazy mess of things. <laughs> I'm a, you know, your typical small town boy. I, I grew up in Southwestern Ontario. Uh, in a little town called Hansel. My dad was in the farm machinery business, so we were in a very rural area. Um, And, you know, it's one of those things, uh, I grew up in a town where it takes a a neighborhood or a community to raise a child, and believe me, that's the way it was. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, we've got away from that. I think you'd agree uh, that just doesn't happen in today's world. Um, And then in my grade 12, we moved to Elmira, and at that time, I got involved with a group that was uh, um, focused on prevention of drug trafficking. For because of my age, I was in grade twelve. We I was ended up being the vice president of this group, and I had always been. If you looked on my wall as a kid growing up, I it was covered in uh, pictures of RCMP on horses. I think my whole uh, I was in bunk beds with my older brother, and I think my whole wall was covered where I was pitted in. And But I was also very inquisitive, and I got nicknamed uh, by my dad, Sam Spade. It got shortened to Spade, and that actually stuck. Uh, if you talk to anybody from my hometown, they'll, they only know me as Spade, and that's sort of how it stuck, because I asked a lot of questions about a lot of things. And, um, 
you know, I, when I got into drugs, I because re- I had seen some some individuals in the school I was in, how they got involved, and some of them got involved with LSD and went on some real bad trips, mm. ended up really affecting them and probably still has affected them to this day. And I became really anti-drugs. I did a lot of reading on organized crime back when I, I was in high school. And I really, at that uh, point, de- decided that I, two things. One, I... I really wanted to make a difference. I thought in preventing a lot of the drug trafficking that was going on. Very naive, I must admit. And the second thing was I really wanted to take on organized crime. Um, there was a, a girl in our school at that time. Her dad was involved with the uh, Italian mafia, and he was found in a gravel pit shot. So, wow. um, you know, I got a very early indoctrination what happens and i just decided uh, that had to change and also there was an individual lived down the street from us that was vying to get into the hell's angels motorcycle club and um you know one of the things he had to do was assault a police officer in order for initiation and all of these things really for me hit home that uh you know there has to be a uh a some control on what's going on in society so yeah i guess that's what sort of pushed me to do go into policing um obviously it wasn't anywhere near what i thought it was going to be as far as being able to accomplish anything but you know i still felt we can make a difference if everybody works together and if you go back in the early days of of the rcmp when i went in and uh was in vancouver drugs for instance you know we were over a hundred members uh we worked very closely with our our policing partners in the lower mainland uh we had an ability to go out and take on uh just about any level of organized crime at that time that we're in uh focusing on drugs and we're very successful um so it, it was good to see we we probably were a leader in the world as far as our undercover programs we we did training internationally on it so we at that time there was investment in policing mm. uh our management recognized although i think some of them uh tolerated us because uh they didn't feel we sh- should be wearing, have long hairs and beard. I can remember a couple of the senior officers really being critical. Um, but, you know, we still survived in spite of them is what I would say. And that, unfortunately, uh, after my time going into Ottawa, uh, after my undercover operation in Vancouver, it was a contract put on myself and my family. We moved to to Ottawa. Um and fortunately, I worked for a boss, uh, a guy by the name of Rod Stamler. Uh, um, I have the greatest respect for the man. And we all meet s- certain individuals in our policing career that we have a great deal of respect for. And Rod was one of those. He, uh, in my view, was ahead of his time. He would have made one hell of a commissioner. Mm-hmm. I think he would have brought the force uh, far into the 21st century had he been permitted to go up the chain. Um but Rod brought in, when I got there, we we focused on how do we stop? Because one of the things that I can remember one of the first conversations I had with Rod, I'd gone through all these court trials for all the individuals that we had taken down. And we had taken down some very high level uh, organized criminals in, in the Vancouver connected through to Montreal. Yeah. And I said to him, what have we accomplished? We got a flash in the pan of being able to go to the media and say, look what we did. Mm. But all of these guys went to jail. 
kept all their money and will be coming out and probably earning tremendous interest on their investments. And so what really have we accomplished? And Rod decided that let's go after the proceeds of crime. And at that point in the uh, under Section 312, it was an offense for to have proceeds of crime. But there was just no legislation allowed for the seizure of intangibles like bank accounts, et cetera. But Rod was still proactive and said, we're going to test the law. We're going to push it to the limit. And we started out with 14 individuals um, and ended up going to 19. I was in that second group, uh, ended up taking over the unit. Um, and, you know, it was really an interesting time because we traveled right across Canada. I trained, uh, including your own force. I went in and did some mm-hmm. training there. We trained every law enforcement, large law enforcement agency in this country. And everybody from the fraud sections and the drug sections saw this as, yeah, we got to do this. This is something we all got to do. Well, and I I just want to jump in real quick because uh, you bring up a really good point. And I've said this many times on here before, even to this day. So we're talking, you know, you're going through the eighties, right. Is, and into the nineties. And even to this day, we have a lot of the bad guys who say, I don't care about the criminal charges. I know my lawyer's going to get me off on Something and and that's now to do with like Stinchcomb and the Jordan decisions. There's issues around that, um, but when you take the money, yeah. and then in addition to the money, the social aspect. So you make me a social leper, and I can't go out with uh, go out and hang out with my friends and get the girls at the club or well guys now because there's a lot of girls involved in org crime. Um, so you just make them a, a basically a shut in, and they can't spend the money, and and that's where you absolutely crush crime but a lot of people like we don't have a lot of the tools i'll say uh to deal with the money side of things especially at like a municipal level i don't think it's as robust as it needs to be but in your book you talk a lot about like uh the the power that you have in how many people you have and being under i think there's one part where you mentioned you need something like 350 people across canada but you had like 200 and that continues to this day. People aren't, aren't aware of that. I actually just had a presentation the two days ago. Um, someone from F Division came out and did a presentation on you know, money laundering and proceeds of crime. And they mentioned the exact same thing. I think they were saying their unit's like seven people, but it should be double that. Um, so it's still the same issues keep going around and around. <laughs> so, sorry, go ahead. It's unfortunate because... If you look at the early 90s, um, they started what they called the Integrated Proceeds of Crime Program. And the Integrated Proceeds of Crime Program provided, initially it was called fence funding. In other words, it it was totally under Proceeds of Crime, the Integrated Proceeds of Crime Unit. And we had to report back to Treasury Board and what we did with that money. And it allowed us to bring in um, our municipal partners and our provincial partners and actually pay them, uh, pay for their salaries and pay the investigative Mm -hmm. expenses. And I I can tell you, we had prosecutors, I had tax in my unit, and it worked really well. Just like you were saying, it... uh, we were able to go and sit down with, uh, you know, defense counsel. We'd lay these charges and we just simply sit there and say, 
you know, we want all the assets. And and I can remember a couple of times the lawyers saying, well, you're not going to prove this. And I, we had our tax partners with us and they would say, well, no, but we you're going to your clients can owe X amount of dollars one way or the other to tax. And they would say, OK, make us a, a complete offer. What do you want? Mm-hmm. And we ended up with a lot of guilty pleas and the satisfaction you get one case in particular really hits home. And and this, I think is, you know, sort of for an officer, you get a big smile on your face. We took down this cocaine trafficker, very large doing multi kilos. And we went out and seized his yacht Mm -hmm. and the look on his brother's face. When we hopped in the yacht to drive it down to the dock, uh, the, the company dock, was unbelievable. And those are the things you never forget. And that's where, you know, you put a port, their Porsche on a V, back it up, hook it up, put it on a truck. That's what hits home. Yeah. And that's what this is all about. The sad part is today that the federal government has in the last 15 years failed to finance the needs of law enforcement. I'm not just saying RCMP. The RCMP uh, Mm -hmm. management, because they didn't get extra funding, eroded the specialized units. Uh, Contract policing became the focus. And that's why I'm a very strong advocate. And I know the association says, oh, we can do it. But the RCMP's got to wake up to realize we're in the 21st century. Yeah, Policing is far more complex. Well, and I wonder too, so with the uh guests last week were National Police Federation. And we had a bit of that talk about the generalist versus specialist. And yeah, kind of to your point, I wonder just how for, you know, how much of a generalist can you be when you are talking about, you know, transnational money laundering? Doesn't sound like something a frontline police officer can do. Sometimes I think though, also we need to have more partnerships outside of policing. And I see this even within my own organization, uh, you know, partnering with journalists or partnering with banks or whatever it might be, whatever you're trying to do, it's like, uh, we'll almost do anything that we have to within legal limits to go after crime. So why aren't we doing these things with, you know, the specialists, uh, with the specialist in mind? So when it comes to money laundering, I know maybe like a handful of cops that uh, would even you know be able to conceptualize where some of this stuff goes and how it how money moves and shell games that are played. Um, I still to this day I have discussions with you know our chain of command or fellow you know my peers, and they'll say there's a black guy talking to the Hell's Angels. Like like where have you been? Like if there's money to be made. People are going to be friends, like, but they think everything's just a nice, neat structure. Things only move from A to B. Like, no, we need someone who specializes in, in this, sits there every day and looks at these things and, and really enjoys it too. That's another aspect. Um, if you, I'll give you some concrete example. When I was running the proceeds of crime units, I was able to demonstrate that if I brought in a good investigator, so say from your department, a solid detective, I needed five years mm. for them on the unit before they could take on an international case. Yeah. 
And that just was never happening. The turnover going out, it just didn't happen. So we never really ever maintained that level of expertise. I mean, I've been doing this since 1983 mm-hmm. uh, and haven't really ever got out of it. I, I learn every day because it's so complex and things are changing. And we need to accept that. We need to accept one of the things that is so sadly overlooked in our community today and that's the impact of, and I basically label the Chinese government as the biggest transnational organized crime group there is. Mm-hmm. So few people understand that. So few people understand the impact. And I use, I just wrote an op-ed piece for, it should be coming out in the National Post next week. But I just wrote an op-ed and, and we look at the uh, hospitals And everybody's crying about our hospital system is an ultimate failure. And it is. But nobody is really going to the root cause. Yes. The root cause is the fact we've got a fentanyl crisis in this country. And every time they bring in an overdose, it shuts down four people in that uh, emergency department. Well, they're not just getting one or two. They're in bigger cities. It's five, six and seven. Yeah. The other thing I argue is that we need to wake up to is this crisis has cost Canadian population a hundred and some thousand people since 2021. Think about the fact we can't get enough law enforcement officers. We can't get enough people in the military. These are people between the ages of, I'd like to say 18 to 34, but it's 15 to 34. Yeah. How many of those probably could be attracted if they didn't get hooked on these drugs? And, you know, we're we're looking at things like a, a good example is what they're doing in British Columbia and they're p- passing the drugs out. Well, these drugs now are being not being used by the users because they're not strong enough. They're being sold to students that it was evidence has shown in Portugal it was a dismal failure. We really need to accept that we've got to get a handle on this stuff and we've got to understand that we're losing badly. Uh, and so you look at the crime problems you have mm-hmm. how much of it is related to drug trafficking yeah well and you know what i think there's a there's an aspect that you really touch on with uh i say like city administrators to bigger politicians um people running the police services they just look at things in a very superficial way and I get like, if you look at political cycle, people say, you know, it's four years. So they got to have all these results in four years. If it's a longer term project, it's like, ah, maybe they'll take it on. But yeah, people are looking at things at just like a very shallow level. And you really do need to go to the root cause. That's some of the arguments that I try to make on this show and, and get people to like listen in to the experts such as yourself. You spent a lot of time at National HQ. Um, so I think you have a really good view overview of how management works when it comes to these things. And you talk a lot about that in the book as well. Um, just talking about how some people are, you know, purely interested in the politicking and not so much the policing side. Um, I'm guessing your, your opinion would be the same even today that it hasn't changed very much. I, w- I would agree it, with that, but I'm wondering like, what's your view on, today's situation when it comes to specifically the administration of these larger police services? Now, stop and think about it. That, And I was a chief, so I understand even the municipal side of it. In fact, I was headhunted to go to Calgary, and I turned it down. Um, it's 
I think what you got to look at is, first of all, the commissioner of the RCMP is a deputy minister. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, that's a conflict of interest. He reports to government. He's part of government. So and I don't think people understand that. Um, I believe it should be a, a neutral board that is they report to very much like in a city. It shouldn't be a mayor that you report to, and you shouldn't be at the will of the mayor. It's got to be a neutral board, and operations have to be carried out unfettered. Administration, yes, you've got to have oversight, but operations should be 100% unfettered. Unfortunately, very much like the RCMP commissioner, far too many chiefs, and I could cite example after example, are too busy playing politics than doing their job. And I think that's where policing has suffered immensely. Mm-hmm. I think there is things that we can do in this country. I'm, I would, wouldn't have said this a few years ago, but I'm a firm believer. Look, we're losing the war and a war battle, call it what you want, on transnational organized crime. We are a haven today for transnational organized crime. So let's allow police forces to keep some of the spoils if they invest in it to take them on because the RCMP is mm-hmm. not in a position to do it. Um, we've got to have some incentive for municipalities to do this. And I believe that's one way to do it. I believe that the government today, if we're going to be successful at all, really needs to look at all the gaps in our legislation. And I guarantee I could put together a panel of 10 people mm-hmm. and we could come up with all the gaps. And you mentioned it, Stinchcomb, Jordan, um, all of these things put so much pressure on how to do these transnational organized crime investigations. We should have a RICO type statute, which uh, allows uh, almost like a civil type forfeiture unit. Yeah. We need to have uh uh, fraud statute for wire fraud because you just about tie anything into wire fraud and we need the judges to understand that we're dealing with criminals we're not dealing with people that's going to come out and you can put them out on bail's going to say okay i was bad i'll be good now. you know what i know it it's not happening yeah i don't want to see build 100 new prisons but damn it if that's what it's going to take to get this under control then we should be doing it because society is paying a price like never before just the health system alone and the, the total overall impact you look at robberies how much they're up all drug goes right back to the drugs. They got to get money somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so what has that done? Take a look at your average shift on policing today. What are you focused on? Yeah. You're you can't do proactive policing. You're going from call to call to call. And why is that? Because it's the state of our societies today and we need to get a handle on it. Um you know I I I I, I subscribe to something that Robert Kennedy said and I think we all really need to think about that. And that's politicians and law enforcement and society as a whole. But it says every generation inherits a world it never made. And it does so, it automatically becomes the trustee of that world for those who come after. In due course, each generation makes its own accounting to its children. Mm -hmm. And I look at that, I look at my children and my grandchildren today and I must admit, I'm I'm almost ashamed to admit what we're going to leave to them. We're leaving a debt load, something terrible. We're leaving a crime problem, something terrible. And nobody seems to want to focus on reality. Like you said, politicians focus on how do I get elected in the next election? Well, they need to pull their head out of the sand and recognize that we have a problem in this country. 
And the only way we're going to do it is get a handle on it. And the best way to do it, we need to take a, a gap analysis. And the second thing we need, need to do is name a um, probably an individual that will oversee enforcement in this country that will report both the provinces and the federal government and have the power to try and make some changes in conjunction with the provinces and federal government mm. so that it doesn't fall off the table every time there's an election. These are the things that we really need to do and take seriously. Well, and um, one thing that you brought up there, so talking about some of the legal reform, I know uh, here in Alberta, we have some gang legislation. It's under the pro um, provincial acts. We've been pointing out some issues with that for a long time, as is the team that one of the, one of the few teams that it, is allowed to enforce it as per policy. And we've been pointing out all these issues and everybody keeps telling us, well, it, it's weak in this way or it won't work in that way. There's going to be a challenge to it. It's like, then why aren't we fixing it? And I've been on this team for five years and nobody's been trying to fix it. And then we just did a training day uh, a few weeks ago and someone at the front's presenting on it and saying, well, you know, there's this issue with it and we need to change this. And don't do these things. Yeah, uh, we mentioned we've been talking about this for five years. I just wrote a paper to give to my boss, passed through the chain of command. It's like we've already pointed all this out. Nobody's wanted to do any of the work. So where do we find these people that actually want to do some of the work? And it's it just kind of mind blowing. It's like, yeah, we. I, I don't know if we just don't have the right people in the right positions to take these things on. Um, or is it just, uh, are people afraid to try and make change? But yeah, if something's not working, let's stop doing it and, and find something new. But um, yeah, that, I, there's a lot of points that you brought up that I, I want to get to. Um, one of the things I do want to ask, though, before we get too, too deep is about the book. Um, why, why now? So what made you decide to bring this out now? Because I think it is, it's timely, and it's speaking to a lot of the issues we see. So what what made you kind of decide this is the year? I have been encouraged, uh, Nathan, to write this book probably for 20 years. Uh, I know, I know, as you probably gather from the book, I know a lot of journalists. And uh, I was very open with the media, sometimes to the chagrin of my superiors, but that's just the way I was. Um, and so... I started writing it a number of times. The, when the pandemic hit, obviously I had lots of time, so I, I spent a little time on it then. And then I realized the timing is perfect for all the issues that, you, that we've been talking about. Um, it's not just about my career. I, I want to use my career to show the erosion of the RCMP, and that's what I did, and show that it's not a perfect organization. And not, there isn't any perfect organization. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to show how contract policing is is we need to get out of it i i still believe the rcmp needs to get out of it and i know that is really uh not something the association wants to hear but the rcmp's got to stop being all things to all people and then with this drug crisis and my knowledge of what's going on with china i just felt it's something i had to get out i mean i'm I turned 70 this year, so uh, every day I wake up is a good day. So I uh, <laughs> I decided that, you know, you keep putting it off, I'll never get a chance to get it out. 
So that was the reason I'm really hoping, I've been told that I'm going to be asked to testify before the House of Commons on the review of the, the Proceeds of Crime Money Laundering Act, which is under the five-year review. Mm-hmm. There's a member of parliament that, uh, a guy by the name of Chris Chambers, that has already said he's put my name forward to testify. Um, okay. You know, if I can make a modem of change, um, I, I think, some of the the individuals that have read my book and and done critiques on it have really been uh, very humbling for me, but very laudatory. But it's got out to a very large audience. Like you, I'm very largely connected on social media. Um, so I'm trying to use all of that to get the messaging out, uh, doing a number of presentations. And, you know, uh, I really hope uh, that we can get some momentum in this country to take this seriously because um, law enforcement, uh, I, you know, I I sympathize with law enforcement officers today that are committed because it's a frustrating existence. You know it has to be done, mm-hmm. but you can't do it for a number of reasons. We got to change that. We got to put it back that, uh, you know, I've said for years, I watched, I, I, and the best example I've is when I started in 1973, Traditional are the uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs. They were street thugs, much like the street gangs that you compete with today. I watched them grow into a multinational criminal organization. And that's a failure of law enforcement. That should have never, ever happened. And those are the things you look at. When are we going to start taking this seriously? Because it does impact us. And, you know, we have a very naive population. So that's why I did, I've done a lot of TV interviews. The public has to wake up to this. Yes. This is serious. Yeah. And that, that's uh, a big thing I want to touch on is how do we educate? Well, I guess one is the education piece. How do you educate the public? Because this is a very big concept topic in a lot of respects. Um, a lot of people don't even know what's going on outside their small town or whatever. Now you want to talk to them about China halfway across the planet and their ideologies and everything. And, and then it trickles down. But how do we get people to care about this and make it, make it a, an issue for them? And I, you know, as I was just saying, I think education is a big part, but also showing them where people can really uh, see it, it contextualized is in the day to day. So it's like, you wonder why your banking fees are so high because they pay millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to security companies to make sure that someone isn't going in and hacking your account. And not to uh, say I'm sympathetic to big banks. I think there's issues there too, but, um, but I can understand why we have fees for things or why things cost so much. Now people got to pay for all these different things because there's crime out there and safety and security, uh, right at the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs something we can't do without. So you're going to have to pay for it. But if we've allowed these things to just kind of fester and grow and get out of control, well, it's going to cost more, you know, to, to get rid of this thing that's already got roots than it would have been to foot the bill in the first place and, and at least try to keep a lid on it, if not um, wipe it out completely. So I think Nathan, and that's why I'm hoping that this piece comes out in the national post next week, because I'm, I'm almost using shock and awe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to shock the public consciousness. Yes. And one of the areas that I think does it is our med- is our whole medical system. Mm-hmm. And 
letting people realize and and uh, one of the individuals i work with the chief uh, operations officer his wife is an emergency doctor and in london ontario and she's told me how many times that the emergency department gets shut down because of overdose coming flying in and they have to go to those right away well what about the heart attack victim what about the stroke victim all of those end up being almost secondary because of a drug overdose problem. We need people to understand that what is the root cause? You know, the politicians are saying, and everybody else saying, we don't have enough doctors. Uh-huh. And, but let's look at what shuts down the emergency department. I watched a show one night of people being rushed into emergency that have gone through an overdose. It took five medical professionals to deal with that overdose. Yeah. Well, think about that in an emergency department. Well, and is it more we don't have the numbers? And you could say the same thing about police. It's always more bodies, more bodies. But is it, are are the bodies doing the right job? And do they have the, the effective tools and technology, right? Do we have to invest more, work smarter, not harder, and not just throwing bodies at an issue so yeah you're you're um talking about the emergency room well if doctors didn't have to spend we'd have to send five of them to deal with this drug problem then maybe that's five heart attacks we're taking care of at the same time right exactly yeah you know and i I, it's it's something would be interesting to really look at the stats on that and and i don't have all the stats and you don't really hear any doctor coming out and talking about it because it's probably not politically correct but we should yeah we need to look at these things. And, you know, it's, it's, we look at all of the, and I'll use the term, all of the woke processes to deal with this drug situation. Mm-hmm. And look, I'm a, like you, I'm sure I, I believe in the Charter of Rights and all of that. But I go back to the opium wars that happened in China. And that, as you know, was really created by the British and uh, it, you know, just about uh, annihilated the Chinese population. Um, how did they overcome it? Well, it was forced treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, my my daughter works in the mental health field, and um, probably eighty percent of her clients are drug users. Yeah, and you know, you can't. Half the time, she's having to get them formed. Um, because there's no way of managing them. They, you know, they don't look after themselves. That's a heavy drug user. And this idea, well, we'll hand them more drugs and that's going to solve the problem. I mean, I've, I've watched types with the rig in their arm, the smile on their face, and they drop dead because it was a spike drug. I have seen it over and over and over again. And I know that if you are an addicted drug addict, you just can't think straight and think on your own. We've got to find a better way of dealing with it for the benefit of that individual and a benefit of society. And I know people will say, holy Hannah, you know, you're, it's almost like a, a communist point of view. It's not. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of the individuals that they can have a life. The 14, 15, 18 year old that, you know, what do they have to do? They have to prostitute themselves to buy the drug. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, people have to understand they don't do it because 
they're enjoying prostituting themselves. They're doing it because the only thing they think of is how they get their next fix. Well, you had a good uh, example of that in your book where you talked about um, there was the one girl and it, I guess she was kind of, she was a prostitute and she was going on to a ship. Yes. And working on the ship just to get the drugs. I was like, Jesus, this is some like real examples here, but I don't think people realize like just the stuff going on. She was, I had the potential until she got obviously hooked on heroin. She, she could have been a model. She was that good looking. I'm surprised that the Colombians didn't take her out and just throw her into the ocean far out in sea. Mm-hmm. She was beat so badly that she basically was going to be almost a paraplegic at the end of it. And it was unreal. And they kept her on that ship for a whole weekend. Wow. And, you know, and I think the one, though, that I, I think, believe I cited in the book, the one that really hit home to me was the prostitute got herself pregnant. And, I, you know, I was portraying a non-user. And I, I just said to her, how could you do this mm. to a child? And she looked at me and says, you don't get it. This is the only way I feel like a human being and a female. Yeah. And I, at the time, probably being young and sort of very focused, I thought, yeah, right. But, you know, I look back now and that's really telling for all of us what that really means. And that's what I think people need to understand. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, how do you get that message across? How do you get them to feel that emotion? Um, Especially younger people that you don't, I guess you just don't have the life experience to kind of think about these things in hindsight. Um, But certainly as you get into your career, you know, I'm 12 years in now, 13 years in, um, I look back even just, you know, five, six years and that's, you're still a pretty new, new cop at that point. And you're like, wow, I didn't think of things this way, or I didn't see it this way. Um, so one thing, um, I want to kind of make sure we get to is talking about how hard it is to detect some of this stuff. So when we're talking about like the very big scope, uh, money laundering, transnational stuff, how, you know, do we need hundreds of people? Do we need thousands of people focused on this? Or is it like we could do with 12 and that's going to you know take on all of Canada's issues. But uh, can you kind of yeah. uh, maybe frame out what money laundering is, the amount of money that's going around this world right now? Well, they, they still say it's uh, 2 to 3% of GDP worldwide. So we're talking trillions. Um, I would think Canada right now is probably, if we were to look at its totality, you know, they, they say about 10 billion. I'll venture, I guess, we're probably looking at because of our exposure to fentanyl and that, you're probably looking at close to 30 to $50 billion floating around this. Wow. Our country. Um, what do we need um, to take an investigation on? First of all, skill. Um, you have to understand, um, I was not an accountant or anything when I got into this. Um, and yet I was able to train on how to do the financial side of an investigation. Um, it's not all that difficult. I used to say to the investigator, can you balance your checkbook and can you use a calculator? The other part of it is today, it makes it so much easier with AI. You're able to flow charts so much easier today than we ever were before. 
Um, so it's really, you know, you look at it and I used to say, um, if you're working on an organization and you're going after the drugs and you're starting at the street, it's a hell of a climb to get to the top of that organization. Yeah. Start with the money. You're going to be 80% of the way there. It's really easy to stand at the top of that pyramid and look down and see how that flow is. So that's really what it takes. It takes you know, uh, an investigation day because of disclosure and affid- or production orders and all of that. You know, you're looking at for, a um, say, a, a large criminal organization, you're probably looking at 15 to 20 investigators. But the idea behind that is to take the whole organization out. Yeah. So not just, you know, getting a, one drug seizure and running away and do your splash in the paper and saying look how good we are mm-hmm. um you're actually looking to take the organization out you know and combined in that group you you do need your i believe very strongly in working close with prosecutors i saw the value of it in the integrated units and it works good because anything you 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 make sure you don't have something that's going to be the fruit of the poison tree. Yeah. So you don't want to do a multi-million dollar investigation, lose it as some of the ones that we've seen in the last few years. And I believe a prosecutor had been involved. That wouldn't have happened. Mm, okay. And those are the things we've got to do. We got to do a better job of, um, we've got the skill, but it takes a commitment. I mean, I wanted to see when, before I left, uh, I, I, think I put together, we needed about 365 proceeds of crime investigators funded. And we were going to partner with all policing agencies. Okay. And I believe we could have been effective. Um, when I walked out the door, we were down to 125. Uh, average experience was two and a half years service. Wow. It just didn't work. And then it's got eroded from there down to when I testified on the Cullen Commission, uh, they were saying they had five in the province of British Columbia. When I left, we had 65. At the peak, we had 65 in British Columbia. Hmm. You know, um, it takes that. And I'm not just saying RCMP officers. Uh, Some of my best investigators, just so you know, were outside police resources. I had an OPP officer and a, a couple from uh, Ottawa police that were just second to none. I was fortunate. I got along real well with the commissioner and the chief of police in Ottawa. And I kept the one OPP worked with us for 13 years and the two Ottawa were probably eight years. Well, and on that, I kind of want to ask, so what can municipal services do? Because I know they don't necessarily have the budget all the time. Even the bigger ones, when you think like Edmonton, Calgary, sometimes it is still a budget issue. Oh yeah. So is it always looking at a partnership with the RCMP or another organization? Well, where it worked in the United States is the Drug Enforcement Administration had a very large, it still does, uh, I think, but they had a very large uh, budget. Mm-hmm. And what would happen is if, a municipality or a, a state police department partnered with the drug enforcement agency. All costs were paid by the drug enforcement agency. And then pending on the contribution by that agency, there was sharing of the uh, proceeds. Okay. So, I mean, it, it was very beneficial. I mean, the, the, the concerning government was, and I was on the ground floor of this, that they didn't want 
police force is going out and seizing money for the sake of seizing money for the benefit of their budget. But I think there can be put some controls on yeah. it, that it goes back into enforcement and prosecution and it would be beneficial because the bottom line is, and here's my argument today, and I would argue with any government, we're not getting the money now. So if we were to make that incentive available to all law enforcement across this country, I think we'd start seizing more. Yeah. And so what? It means the criminals aren't getting it. We may reduce the cost of policing somewhat. We may solve part of the problem of our health care because we're going to get more druggies off the, you know, major drug traffickers off the street. We need to educate the courts that it's serious dealing in fentanyl. I'd like to see where they're charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Yeah. We know fentanyl kills. There was some talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's call it what it is. And if we started doing things like that, we would not be attractive to all the transnational organized criminals that are setting up shop here. Well, and even on the asset side, so when we're looking at like vehicles, um, I mean, that's one of the first thing that a drug dealer is going to buy is the fancy car. But if we take that car, um, and that revinning right now is a huge, huge issue. But if we take that car and we can sell it, and then, yeah, some of the proceeds go back to the police service, only kind of makes sense like i I, and i think it does to a a certain extent but i i don't think it's a lot of the proceeds go to the police service it goes to other functions so yeah but i also think that you know take a look at cars um why aren't we allowing those cars to be used by law enforcement after they're seized yeah yeah you know uh figure out what it costs the calgary police for all their plainclothes vehicles uh, say that you had an exchange or a, pro- a provincial uh, area where these cars went. And so you might see something that everybody would know in Calgary, but you could get one similar from Edmonton or f- that Edmonton sees yep. and put it back in your fleet. Just think of the money that would be saved. Yeah. Now that's money that could go back into either frontline policing or into more enforcement on guns and gangs and the whole nine yards. Does that benefit society? You bet in a big way. And talking um, just back to the partnership uh, between you know, RCMP and municipal services, but I want to bring banks into this too. Um, so you'd be a good person to talk to about this. Uh, are banks doing things properly? Are they doing it better at detecting than maybe law enforcement might be? Or um, I'm just thinking like they might be a really good partner because they're going to have very different tools and be able to help in a lot of ways. But I know from my own experience, sometimes banks aren't the easiest to work with, uh, especially when it comes to production orders. And you're like, hey, I want this thing within 30 days. And they're like, yeah, I'll get it to you when I want to get it to you. <laughs> and um, yeah. so are we missing that, I guess, the cohesiveness between partners in, in Canada? Is that kind of an issue here? I think it is. We're, we're actually just so you know at the... Uh, Canadian Bankers Association, uh, we are discussing uh, how we can be more uh, be more open on communication, have more sharing of information. It's a big issue. Um, legally, it's a big issue. Uh, I would like to see it. Are banks doing a phenomenal job? No. Mm. Uh, they're doing a better job than they did a number of years ago. But, you know, everybody has to understand that money laundering can only occur through gatekeepers that happens to be your lawyers 
that happens to be your banks, that happens to be your accountants. You take every one of those out of the equation and money laundering is very difficult. Then you have to go to the underground systems like the Iwaladars. Well, they're not going to be able to move the amounts of money that are being moved. So the bottom line is, are they doing a better job? Absolutely. I mean, the investment that banks are doing and what a lot of people probably don't realize as of this year, we have to pay the banks. Every bank is assessed. We have to pay for FinTrack, all of their compliance. Okay. So I don't know what the exact cost will be, but probably for a Royal Bank, it'd be $5 million or more. Mm. Um, so it's costing banks a lot, which in turn, which people should realize, is costing them. You can guarantee banks are going to get that money back. The cost always gets pushed down. You want to believe it. So it's costing them. So, yeah, I, I do. I think we can do a lot better. I still believe that lawyers have to be brought in under the regime. Um, I I actually testified for the government when we first had the the argument that uh, it was solicitor client privilege. And that's a bunch of bull. Mm. Uh, if they're acting as a financial advisor or a real estate agent, they should have no more protection than a real estate agent. And we need to understand that. And, you know, is there dirty lawyers? Yes, there is. Is there dirty police officer? Yes, there is. But let's accept it and then let's deal with it because the absence of dealing with it creates a great big loophole. And until we close it, money laundering is going to continue. Yeah, well, I've had a few experiences with some lawyers and them trying to get rid of evidence or different things. And if you try and talk to chain of command about that, uh, and this is like, few years ago i talked to chain of command about that it's like a no-go zone it's like we're not even gonna deal with that uh you know all the privilege stuff and this and that and i'm like why don't we take the stuff you know get the warrants or whatever we need to and then take the stuff and then you argue that in court later on but to just say no outright and like we're not even gonna look at it it's like and there's your opening <laughs> you know that person's just doing whatever they want actually um and speaking about some of the lawyers, I would encourage a lot of people to pay attention to some of these bigger stories when it comes to like drug trafficking, the money laundering, and look at the names of the people in there and just find the connections. It's not hard. These are entire organized crime families. You know, one sibling is a lawyer, one's, uh, you know, I don't know, working in pharmaceuticals and getting the drugs. The other one's doing the actual, like, you know, some of the other crime. These are entire families that get entrenched in doing this stuff. And it, it's very fascinating when you start going down those rabbit holes. But I need people to pay attention to who's, you know, putting out the narratives. Oh, none of my clients are drug dealers and none of my clients did this. Well, that guy himself is probably doing some criminality. Like, so just... People need to keep that in mind. And that's actually something I'm surprised has never been impressed upon the media themselves. I know there's journalists who look into that, but like the big mainstream media, I think we need to change some of their tune a little bit and say like, you have a part to play in this as a partner as well with law enforcement. And you need to start like helping the public and helping us. I mean, they, they've got a lot of power. They got a lot of reach. Why aren't, uh, as police services, why aren't we trying to, I don't know, build an, a, an effective relationship with them? Is that something, um, you know, throughout your time at um, HQ or being a police chief, 
you ever see like, is that even possible? I know nowadays, I think a lot of people just say there's not a chance in hell. <laughs> the media is not the most friendly with police. But, um, you know, is that something that you ever saw or, or kind of came across? I, fortune for me, I had a number of investigative journalists that I had a lot of respect for. Uh, Julian Schur, he wrote the book, The Road to Hell, uh, on the motorcycle gang. I, I, did, I agreed to be interviewed for that book. Um, you know, I can, I can go down a whole list of investigative journalists. They're not all the same and you got to be careful, but mm-hmm. I, I believe that investigative journalists can do real good. And like you say, they can get the message out. Sam Cooper is somebody I'm sure you've heard of that yep. Sam has done a wonderful job. His first book, I probably spent four or five hours, uh, sort of educating him, uh, for his first book. Um, and it, why am I doing it? I just want to get this message out. And the more people we can educate, the better off we're going to be. Are we making a difference? Yeah, I think we are. There's, unfortunately, the politicians, and I'm, you know, I'll be testifying to that. But if you look at, uh, you know, and take China, which is one real bugbear for me, but if you take China and you look at how Power Corp and uh, how many politicians I, I think i say in my book they yeah they, it was a retirement ground for the canadian china business association or the chinese business association it's a sad thing but it was yeah and i don't think they went into it believing that china was doing what it is but it is and we now need, know this and yet we still got some of them that are still ingratiating themselves with them we need we need those are the things we need to wake up to um actually i can i when i was in hong kong um i forget this was 91 i forget who your chief was but he and the mayor were uh opened up were present for the opening of this uh chinese uh, community center okay and they were standing in they were standing in front of a triad altar (laughs) and i as i said to them what they don't realize is the message that sends within the chinese community yeah and those are the type of things that you know, I think we we all have to do a better job. But is can the media do a better job? Yeah, they can. Unfortunately, a lot of the legacy media, uh, it's so much about uh, re- uh, revenue um, to get them to, re- you know, to write something that's somewhat controversial. And I'm using the example. I'm trying to get this op-ed piece uh, mm-hmm. published. And, you know, I don't know how many times I've been back and forth and, well, can you back this up? Can you back that up? And, and it's all you have to do is pick up, uh, do a little reading and you'd know that it's being done all the time. So those are, that's the type of thing, but you know, uh, you just don't quit. You keep, I mean, what you're doing and getting some of this messing out that I think pays dividends and eventually people will start to listen. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always yelling about stuff at work. So I think people are used to me now. Um, one thing I do want to just uh, with like the last few minutes of our time, just yeah. to paint a really big picture for people. So we've talked a bit about China. Um, but do you have any experience in dealing with stuff coming in from uh, Iran or North Korea? Like, how big is this issue? And then is there um I think there's been a little bit more attention to the political organized crime connection when you look at like India and talking about um, hits being put on people. I think that's starting to come out now, but can you kind of describe or contextualize a little bit of that? Well, Iran, 
Um, I did a number of interviews on Iran. I, I had a uh, Iranian businessman that I got to know very well, and I did some work for them. And I, I, that's when I learned how much money laundering was going on after we put all the sanctions on Iran. Mm. And it didn't. We didn't stop. The money just kept flowing. Oh, really? And they were buying all kinds of real estate. And I walked down the street one day on Young Street, north of the 401 with this individual. And I think, I don't know how many he pointed out, you know, probably 20 businesses. None of them registered MSBs, all were moving money. And it was a free flow of money going back to Iran and coming into this country. The same was happening in uh, all right across Canada. It was happening in Calgary. It was happening in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And it's... Those are the things, but it's not just the movement of money. A lot of it was criminal proceeds. And so, you know, what we're doing is we're supporting a criminal diaspora, and that's exactly what is happening. When you look at India, I think the reality is starting to hit home. We, we just took down a whole group here um, out of that community that was uh, working at a motor vehicle branch and bogus licensing and it was a payoff yeah they could anybody could get a license uh they're monopolizing the trucking industry and the, they're violating just about every provincial rule there is um and this are criminal groups that are doing this um you know the reality of it doesn't matter what ethnic group you are there's going to be people that are tied to the criminal element and unfortunately, Canada has just paved the way to allow this to happen. Um, and so what ends up happening, they start out small. And now we're seeing, you know, examples of massive amounts of cocaine coming in this country through through the truckers and that at the border. And these are a lot of these, not all of them, but some of them are come from the Indian community. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you're seeing the what's going on in British Columbia. And those are all Indian gangs uh, fighting against each other. And what's it over? They want to control the drug trade. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mexico, as you know, I, I'm sure you've read, we Vancouver has now become a, uh, a center of supply yeah. for fentanyl. It's being manufactured. Now think of what that does internationally to us because that a lot of that's being shipped to the United States and Australia. There are five I partners. Yeah. So you can imagine how we're being viewed. We are now being viewed in the similar light to say Colombia. We're a tra we're we're a drug supply point. What a thing to have as a country. Well, especially as a, like one of the G sevens, uh, G seven countries. And I mean, it's been said on here before. We're kind of the weak underbelly to the U.S., but I mean, it's the weak underbelly to a few other nations as well. Um, yeah, we're just kind of coming up to the end of the time here. Uh, I, I could wrap back and forth with you for uh, hours longer on this because it, it's fascinating topic. Um, so I have to get you back on. I just want to give you some time to say how people can follow you and your work. And I will put up a, a link to some of your social media and the book as well. So, but where can people find you? Well, I'm pretty easy to find. I, mean, I you know, I'm on LinkedIn all the time. Um, I've got a website, actually, uh, www.clementadvisorgroup.ca. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very open to answering questions. My, my email is gclement at clementadvisorgroup.ca. 
And, um, you know, I, I respond, uh, generally I'll come back and say, I'm tied up, but I'll respond within 24 hours or two days. But I respond just about to every question I get. And for that reason, I've had a lot of people reach out and I've got a lot of information that probably a law enforcement officer would like to be getting yeah. because they know I'm, I'm a straight shooter. Um, and uh, I've filed intelligence briefs to various police departments for the last 15 years and will continue to do so. Great. Um, well, we'll wrap it up there. We're right on the hour. I'm just going to remind people to subscribe, follow, uh, leave a rating, help the show out. Um, I also reply to some comments. Not if people are swearing at me, though. <laughs> but uh, they've generally, I think 99.9% .9 have been positive. So, yeah, um, I'll remind people to do that. And uh, thank you for coming on the show today. So just hang tight. I'm stop the recording right here. Yeah.